Father, we're very grateful for the new life that we have in Christ. The life that you want us to live. So God, thanks for your great love and your great mercy to us. In response now, Lord, I pray that we would have open hearts to you as we hear from your word. We pray that you would transform us into the people you want us to be and give us your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're walking through the book of Philippians here and we're getting close to the end. We're in the last chapter now. Um, I've been encouraging you to read and reread this book of Philippians. I've even given you a homework assignment of picking out a key verse from the book of Philippians. Some of you have given that to me already and I thank you for that. I'd love to hear from some more of you what you think either a key verse is or give me even a, a one or two sentence synopsis of what you think the book of Philippians is about. So far what we've seen in this book are some wonderful theological truths about who Jesus Christ is. And and then Paul also teaching us how to live in Christ. And as often is the case in Paul's letters, what he does is he he starts off with the theological stuff. He starts off focusing on Christ and who he is. And then oftentimes at the end of his letters, he gets into this section where he starts telling us some things that we should do in response to that, giving us more commands. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. In eight verses, we're going to see eight commands from the Apostle Paul. So he's asking us to live a certain way. Now, one way, the wrong way to view commands is to view them merely as a list of rules. And I think a lot of people view Christianity that way, that that God's just up there trying to take away our fun, and that the Bible is just this old book written by stodgy old men trying to take away our fun. But that's not the right way. The right way to view commands is that God, in his mercy, has told us how we should live. And that following God's commands then actually brings life. Uh, I was reading in the Psalms this morning, Psalm 19, verse 8. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. So if we look at these commands, we can know that this is God teaching us what's best for us. So these commands aren't just a tedious to-do list. Rather, they should help us figure out how to live out the truths that Paul has already taught us about in the book of Philippians. So what I'm going to do today is walk through these eight commands, and I'm going to pair some of them together because they're similar. So I have six points today as we walk through Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. And first I want to read the entire passage. The Apostle Paul writes, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first command we see in verses 2 through 3, and from what we can tell of the context and from, from what Paul has already written in the book of Philippians, we can tell that there was some sort of a problem with unity. So the command in in verses 2 through 3 has to do with unity. And there were two women especially 
in Philippi that weren't united with each other. These two women, Euodia and Syntyche. Maybe you've heard them called Euodius and Syntyche before. But, um, just a way to help you remember who they were. But, um, there's two parts to this command. First, Paul urged these women to agree with each other in the Lord. And then the second part of the command was that he asked this other person whom he called Loyal Yoke Fellow. We don't know exactly who he is, although I read one commentator this week who suggested that it very well could have been Luke. We don't know. But he asked this Loyal Yoke Fellow to help these women agree in the Lord. So overall, the command has to do with getting along. So my first point today is pursue unity. Pursue unity. In verse 2, Paul urged these women to agree in the Lord. Now, back in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul used the exact same words to tell the Philippians in general to be like-minded. So what he said in general in chapter 2, he's now saying specifically to these two women that he wants them to get along. And we don't know exactly what caused the disagreement between these two women, but we do know that these two women were highly valued by Paul. He called them in verse 3, women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Now, just a quick side note here. Whatever your view of women in ministry may be, and I I don't want to get into that discussion right now, whatever your view may be, please understand that God has meaningful gospel work for women to do. And and I get kind of tired of people whose theology um, gets out of bounds in this area, and, and they forget to remember that God has gifted each of us with things that he wants us to do. So our job here as, as leaders in the church, and, and you, our, our job is to help you, all of you, do what God has gifted you to do, and that very, very much includes women. And it's your job as women then to use the gifts that God has given you. And, and what I love in this is Paul, Paul's heart towards these women. It wasn't just, oh, those silly women, they're not getting along. It's that, hey, these are people that I care about and have been useful to me, contending at my side in the gospel. I urge you then to agree with each other in the Lord. So there was loving discipline from Paul here. And can you imagine if you were these two women and you were the ones who were singled out in this letter, like, oh, can you feel the, the shame? And maybe there was a little bit of shame, but I think what's happening here is that Paul loved these women so much that he cared enough to discipline them and to urge them to agree with each other in the Lord. So there's a pattern here. If people aren't getting along in the church, we should urge them to get along. We should send other people to help them get along. We should pursue reconciliation. And we should urge them, of course, to agree. But notice what Paul said in here. Not, not just that they agree with each other. He urged them to agree in the Lord. They were told to be like-minded, but not just like-minded with each other, like-minded with Jesus Christ. So application question here. Are you causing disunity with anyone? Is there anyone that you can think of maybe in this church or maybe another brother or sister in Christ with whom you need reconciliation? Do you need to go to that person and figure out how you can agree with each other in the Lord? Or maybe you need to seek the the help of somebody else to come in and help you reconcile. I urge you to agree with each other in the Lord. Since we are united in Christ, we should also be united with each other. That's, that's kind of one of the themes of the book of Philippians, is that we should be getting along and agreeing with each other in the Lord. Okay, first command is about pursuing unity. The next two commands are identical, so I'm going to lump them together. And my second point is rejoice, rejoice 
Did you catch how they're similar there? Yeah, I think so. Excuse me. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. This isn't the first time that Paul has told us to rejoice. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. Did you catch the tone of Paul here? He's saying, um, I want you guys to rejoice, and then after that I want you to rejoice, and then after that I want you to rejoice. And by the way, one more thing here. I'm going to repeat myself. I want you to rejoice. It was so important for Paul to get this message across to the Philippians. I think it's important for all of us that we have this heart attitude of rejoicing in the Lord. Now, joy is often called a theme of the book of Philippians, and I think it is. It's, it's definitely one of the themes of Philippians. Now, I've been making the point, and I'll, I'll say it again here, that I think the main theme of the book of Philippians is knowing Christ and becoming like him. Within that framework, then, of knowing Christ, one of the things that we are supposed to have is joy. It is supposed to be one of the distinctive markers of us Christians. We, we shouldn't be the most somber person that your friends know. We should be having great joy within us, the joy that God himself gives us. Now, as I've said before in this series, joy is not merely an emotion to Paul. Rejoicing is a choice we make. Now, we can't always control our circumstances, but we can control how we respond to them. And the way that we're to respond in any circumstance is rejoicing. Now again, this is a command. The command here is to look to God and to find something to be thankful for. Now, I'm not saying that everything we go through is good. I know that full well. I know that that some of the stuff that we deal with in life is kind of junky. A lot of that has to do with living in a fallen world. A lot of it has to do with the sinful choices that we make. And sometimes the stuff that we go through isn't good. But, and here's the key, in whatever we go through, we can find reason to rejoice. And how do we do that? Well, what did Paul say to rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord. We are to look to God in whatever we're going through. And I guarantee you that if you look hard enough, you will find something to rejoice about in whatever you're going through. Now, every Thanksgiving, I do a sermon series in the book of Psalms. And one of my key points every time I do that is that thankfulness helps keep us on the right track with God. Now, the opposite is true as well, that if we forget to be thankful, it's so easy to get off track in our relationship with God. And I I read a quote from Gordon Fee, a theologian, who reminded us of the truth in Romans 121. He said, Lack of gratitude is the first step to idolatry. So if you really want to shipwreck your faith, the first thing that you should do is stop thanking God. Obviously, we don't want that. What we want is the opposite. We want to keep on course. And the way to do that, one of the great ways to do that, is to rejoice. Rejoice. I'll say it again. It's no trouble for me to say it again either. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. We are to look to the good things that God is doing. The command here, it's it's not just Paul saying, I hope you feel good. I hope this message does something. What Paul is saying is, make a choice. Rejoice in the Lord. So application here, are you in the habit of rejoicing? Is it the regular pattern of your life to go to God and to be thankful? Even in difficult situations to say, God, I know you're with me in this. Thank you for being with me. Is it the regular pattern of your life when things are going well 
to rejoice in the Lord and to thank Him for the gifts that He's given you. Now, joy is ours for the taking if we will set our minds on God. But that's difficult, right? Because so often as we go through our lives, there are things that we might be tempted to look at and say, oh, God's not being good to me. Or that's just a terrible situation. What we need to do is to retrain our minds to rejoice in the Lord. Our next command comes from verse 5. Verse 5 says, Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. So my point here, let your gentleness be known. The word gentle here is the opposite of the word harsh or overbearing. It's a word that implies not insisting on your own way. Harsh people, when they don't get their own way, they take things into their own hands and they work harder and harder and harder to try to get their own way. But that's not how we're to live. We are to be gentle. Why? Is it because we're weak and we're afraid to stand up for ourselves? No, it's because we trust that God is in control. Verse 5 tells us why we can be gentle. At the end of it, it says, the Lord is near. So what that means is that we can trust that God is in control. And if things aren't going your way, remember, the Lord is near. Now that word near, it can mean either near in terms of time, like he's coming soon, or it could mean near in in terms of location, as in his presence is with us. So which one does it mean here? Well, I think that Paul is kind of being cleverly ambiguous here. I think it probably means both. That we are to remember that Jesus is coming soon. And we're also to remember that he's with us right now. So whatever you're going through, you can be gentle about. You do not have to insist on your own way because the Lord is near. So application question here. Are you a person who insists on your own way? We've all met people like that, right? When things don't go their way, they work hard, trample over people if they have to to get their way. Are you like that? If so, why is that? Are you worried that you have to make things go your way? The Lord is near. We can be gentle. We can trust that he is in control. And then this brings us to our next set of commands in verses 6 to 7. And I just want to say here, I'm going to camp out a little bit longer on these verses because these are so important. In fact, I believe that the truth in verses 6 to 7 might very well change today some of your lives dramatically for the better. I, I believe that the power in these verses, if just speaking about Christians in general and not necessarily anyone in particular in this room, but I believe that there are Christians in this world and it might be some of you that just absolutely need to meditate on the verses, on verses 6 and 7 here, and that the life change that you could have could be dramatic and even instantaneous. It's monumental verses that we all need to consider. Verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. My fourth point today is don't worry, pray instead. Don't worry, pray instead. The first command, as we see in verse 6, is not to be anxious about anything. It's the same exact word that Jesus used in Matthew 6.25 where he said, do not worry about your life. So the command here, either do not be anxious or do not worry, it's the, it's the same, it means the same thing. And I think, honestly, this is one of the hardest commands in the Bible to follow. Don't worry about anything. Really? 
it can be so easy for us to get caught up worrying about things that aren't going our way, things that aren't going the way that we want them to. And obviously, we have a responsibility to take care of things, right? It's not that we just sit on a couch and say, oh, God, I'll take care of everything in my life. There's some things that, yes, we have to do. We have responsibility to do things, yet we are not to worry. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Do not worry about anything. And Jesus even said that we're not to worry about food or clothes. Now, I can imagine that the person who doesn't have food or clothes might be a little bit concerned about those things. But even still, Jesus said, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, why is it that we shouldn't worry? Well, the other command in verse 6 tells us why. Because we can pray to God. I want to reread for you the flow of it so you get why he says, don't worry. Do not be anxious about anything, but... In everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So when can we pray? What can we pray about? In everything. So the reason that we don't have to worry is that God will take care of us in everything. Now think about that from Paul's perspective. If anybody had reason for worry, it was him. He was writing this letter from prison, in chains, And here he is saying, don't worry about anything. Did you notice how we're supposed to pray? I want to teach you this little part here by showing you how I got this wrong. I once tried to quote verse 6 and and tell me how I do here. I said, do not be anxious about anything. Excuse me. I said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. How would I do? What? I missed... There's two little words in there. With thanksgiving. And, and the truth is, I, I believe that it wasn't just that I misquoted that verse or forgot that verse. I think I was in a season of life where I was forgetting to be thankful. We already saw the command to rejoice, rejoice. Well, that's true in prayer as well. As we pray to God, we are to pray with thanksgiving. Even if you're concerned about something. Why? Because God is in control. And when we come to him in prayer, he takes care of things. He takes care of us. So we don't need to worry. In fact, I would go even further and say that worry doesn't do any good anyway. There was a a quote, you know, the the Naz Church, they have their sign out by their church and every week they put a different quote. There was one that really struck me. It said something like this, worry is like praying for something you don't want. Like, why would we intentionally set our minds on things that we don't want when either we could pray and take it to God and let God take care of it or we could just let it fester in us and keep worrying about it? Which way would you rather spend your time? Yet which way do you so often, do I so often, spend my time? Instead of worrying, we can trust God by coming to him in prayer. In prayer, we show that we rely on God and that we trust him to bring about good things in our lives. Worry is our attempt to make our lives go the way that we want. So which one do you want? The the life that you can get for yourself or the life of prayer where we trust God to give us strength for all that we need? It's an easy one. Easy one to know. Hard one to live out. Um... I was reading this week a story about Bill Bright. Bill Bright is the, he's now deceased, but he was the founder and president of Campus Crusade for Christ. I was with that organization on staff for six years. I have a lot of respect for him. 
I, I consider him to be one of the two greatest evangelists of the 1900s. He was a man who had a ton of responsibility, a ton of things on his plate, always just going all over the place and, and doing ministry, whether with individuals sharing the gospel in an elevator or, or large groups of people. He just had a ton of stuff on his plate. And I read a quote from him where he realized that he must not trust in his own power to handle everything that came his way. He said this, If I took my eyes off the Lord, I would be a dead man. But I have learned to place all of my concerns on him, and he gives me peace and the power to do what he has called me to do. Even Bill Bright, this famous hero of the faith, he knew that he had to place things in God's hands and not worry about them himself. See, our worry doesn't do any good. It doesn't advance God's kingdom. It doesn't bring us peace. Instead of worry, we are to trust God and pray. Having an attitude of thankfulness. And that drives worry away. Living like that will lead to peace in your life. A peace which Paul said transcends all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you get what that verse says? That verse says that you can have peace, a peace that in the midst of it, you might not even be able to describe why it is that you have it. You might be going through one of the worst times in your life and you might be able to say, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't understand it, but I have peace. That's the kind of peace that God wants to give to us as we trust in him. I want to give you another illustration of this. And this one, uh, a great friend of mine, I called him this week and I asked if I could use this illustration and he said I could. A uh, friend of mine from seminary, he was, we all knew this about him in seminary, that he worried too much. And in fact, there were a couple of times in seminary where he started having these anxiety attacks and I was around for one of them and it, it got to the point that he, he had so much anxiety that he felt ill in, in his chest, in his heart area and he, he went to the emergency room and, you know, we were, we were praying for the guy, you know, praying that he wouldn't worry so much and, uh, I called him, it was probably a, a year or two later, and he had, he had moved away from me. At this, he had went on to be a pastor somewhere else, and I was here. And uh, he said, Eric, something just, light switch just turned on, and I got it. I, I used to worry so much. I'm like, yeah, I remember that. He's, and he said, I realized that do not worry is a command. It's not just a, hey, you know, I hope you feel this way. It is a command from God. And not only was I, in some ways, ruining my life with worry, but actually I was being disobedient to God. And he said, when I realized that it was a command that I needed to follow, I started following it, and peace came instantly. Theologian Richard Mellick says, prayer cures anxiety. So application questions here. What causes anxiety in you? Do you worry? How do you handle stress when it comes in your life? God wants us to ask him for things. This is one of the things that I find amazing about God because sometimes if I get too many requests sent my way, I, I don't really like it. But God wants us to keep coming to him when in everything. What does he want us to do? Cast your burdens upon him and he will care for you. God deeply wants us to trust in him. And as we do that, he fills us with peace and he takes control of the situation. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. You can either have that deal where you, you give all your worries to God and he takes care of it, or you can cling to it yourself. Which one do you want? The command here, 
do not be anxious about anything. The other command, present your request to God. I've joined them together because I think there's a link there. Instead of worry, we pray. Our next command comes from verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. It's so easy for our minds to drift, maybe especially when you're listening to a sermon, right? Those of you that laugh are listening, thank you. Um, all, all one of you. Um, <laughs> But oftentimes when our minds drift, we drift towards things that are either meaningless or sometimes worse, destructive. You find that when your mind just starts to go off on its own and either you start worrying about the things of the day or you start daydreaming about things you shouldn't be daydreaming about or start thinking about revenge maybe. Our minds can drift to places they should not go. Now Paul could have given us a negative command here. He could have said, hey, stop thinking about those bad things. But instead, thankfully, he chose to remind us to set our minds on things that are true and noble and praiseworthy, etc. Now, too often we think that we can't control our thoughts. But the truth is, we can control our thoughts. We can choose poorly and let our minds drift into worthless things, or we can choose to set our minds on good things. So Paul here lists eight descriptions of good things that we should set our minds on. And the key to understanding all eight of these good things is that God is the one who is the judge of what's true. God is the judge of what's noble. God is the judge of what is excellent. So we we look to him, and and if you're wondering, you know, am I thinking about something that's good right now? Well, God is, tell me, is this something that's excellent? Is this something that's true? So we look to God and ask him for help to think about good things. But this takes discipline on our part. There may be times where you just need to to grab your mind by the shoulders and say, hey, mind, stop thinking like that. I need to start thinking about good things. Okay, we're almost done here. We're getting close to our last command. But I want to take a a little break here and look back. Because most of the commands that we have seen so far in this passage have to do with our minds. What we think about, how we pray. And again, these are commands. So Paul is commanding our minds to think a certain way. And the reason for that, the reason why he can do this, is because in Christ, we have a new life to live. My sermon title today is Living in the Lord. So the reason for all of these commands that Paul gives us, for those of us who have already received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, is because in the Lord, we have a new life to live. We're not simply to follow the old pattern of life. We have a new way to live, and that means that our minds are supposed to be transformed. It's not about working harder and trying to get a better quality of life for yourself. It's about going to God, trusting Him to continually reshape you and mold you into the person He wants you to be. So the reason for these commands is that Jesus has rescued us from sin. That any of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, receiving Him as Savior and Lord, we have a new life to live. There is transformation to be done even in our minds. Like I said, too often we follow the old pattern of life. Why is that? Why, why do we do that? We know that we can follow Jesus, but too often we follow this old pattern of life. Why? Why? I've come up with two reasons. The first is because we're used to that. We spent so many years of our lives following the sinful nature so that when the sinful nature tempts us again, it's so easy to follow that path. It's just, I mean, it's natural 
in that sense, not that it's right, I'm not condoning it, but it's so easy for us just to keep on following that old sinful pattern. The other reason I think that we choose poorly is because truth be told, sometimes we desire sin. Now, we shouldn't. But sometimes the reason that we do these sinful things is because we want to. Because we choose poorly. So what do we need to do? We need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that Jesus Christ died for us, cleansed us of those sins, and has given us a new path. So we go to him and we ask him, God, would you help me to think about the right things? In Christ, we have new lives to live. And we need to choose a proper mindset. That's why Paul lists all these commands about our minds, because our minds are to be transformed. Somebody said to me this week that the gospel transforms our minds. I I love that phrase. The gospel transforms our minds. So we need to submit to God's ways in this. Not insisting on our own ways, but following God's ways. And that takes effort. It means we need to be intentional about following, choosing to follow these commands. So a lot of these commands have to do with our minds, but our final one has to do with actions. Verse 9 Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. My sixth point here is do the right things. Do the right things. Paul here, again, urged the Philippians to follow his pattern of life. He did that again in chapter 3, verse 17. He's done it elsewhere in the Bible. Paul worked hard to set a good example for people. The reason he did that is because he knew that people would have a better chance of following Christ if they saw someone living it out. So he said to them, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, do that. And what was it that Paul did that he wanted the people to imitate? Well, I was thinking about Paul's life. What were the goals of his life? One of the goals of his life was to know Christ. We've seen that in this book. Another goal of his life was to help other people know Christ. That's why he wrote this book. So knowing Christ, helping others know Christ. Reminds me of our mission statement, a passion to know Christ, commissioned to make him known. Those were the examples that Paul was trying to set. And Paul reminds us at the end of verse 9 that if we follow Christ, we can expect that the God of peace will be with us. And I love how that's worded. In verse 9, he calls him the God of peace. In verse 7, he said it's the peace of God that we can have. So if you're following along the logic here, the God of peace will give us the peace of God as we follow him. So following God's commands actually leads to peace. Again, I I started off by saying so many people think that commands take away our fun. But actually, following God leads to peace as we submit to his will and his ways. The theologian Richard Mellick said, God's peace especially resides in those who have ordered their lives in accordance with God's will. So it's submitting to God. And as we submit to God, he fills us with peace. He also fills us with joy. You see, God wants us to have good things. He gave us that list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 because those are things that he wants us to have as we follow him, as we choose to follow his ways. So there they are. Eight commands to follow. I just want to conclude by asking this question then. Which of these commands do you need to meditate on? I think that every one of us probably could take this passage, go home, find a quiet place, look at these eight commands and say, yep, 
that's the one that I need to get. I believe that the Holy Spirit who, who oversaw the whole process of Scripture and who lives in us who have received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I believe that the Holy Spirit will point something out to you, something that you need to chew on, something that maybe isn't true of your life right now and you need to work on. I was thinking about that and I thought, uh, you know, probably for me, verse 8, you know, think about these things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Training my mind again, not, not to let my mind wander. So which one is it for you? Not worrying? Rejoicing? Doing the right things? Or perhaps you'd simply need to meditate on the peace that God will bring to you. But I think that every single one of us has something in here that we need to meditate on and, and say, God, would you please transform me in this area? Help me to submit to you in this. We have a new life to live in Christ. And as part of that new life, there are commands to follow. But these commands are good for us. God has given them to us so that we can walk rightly with him. And remember, we don't do this in our own strength. I'm not asking you to shape up all by yourself. I'm asking you to go to the Lord and say, God, help me. I was in a Bible study recently with Ed Weaver and I asked him if I could share this. He said I could. He pointed out to me that one of the key words in this passage is the little word, in. And I thought it was such a great observation that notice in verse 2 where they were to agree in the Lord. In verse 4, we're to rejoice in the Lord. In verse 7, God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We don't do any of this stuff ourselves, okay? We, we go to God and trust him. We are to remain in him. God is at work in our lives. So how do we remain in the Lord, in Christ Jesus? Jesus told us in John 15:10 one way that we can remain in him, by obeying his commands. Jesus said that. You can remain in my love by obeying my commands. How, do, how does that make you view commands? Jesus went on to say, not only can we remain in his love, but we can have joy. And then he added, complete joy. These commands that we follow, we follow in Jesus. You don't do them in your own strength. We humble ourselves before God and say, God, help me with this. I want to do this in you. I want to honor you by living out these commands in your strength. So keep setting your minds on Jesus. Trust him to guide you through every season of life. Rejoice in him, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. We know that your word leads us into life. We know that your word sanctifies us. As Jesus prayed, that we would be sanctified through your truth, and your word is truth. So God, we pray that you would help us now as we have seen your word, as we have seen commands from you, God, help us to know how you would have us follow these commands. Help us trust in you for the strength to follow them. God, and I pray that every one of us would spend time looking at this passage again and figuring out which of these commands we really need to meditate on. God, would you transform us? Help us not to worry. Help us to rejoice. Help us to have peace in you. Help us to have unity. Help us to think and do the right thing. And may we do this all for you to give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.